Good afternoon. Welcome to the final panel in the Cato University Conference this year. My name is Brink Lindsay. I'm Vice President for Research here at Cato. Uh, given the careful attention with which uh, Tom Palmer uh, organizes these conferences and structures the programs, I think we have to assume that this panel was meant to be the culmination, the capstone, the denouement of the entire four days. Uh, after three days of a whole bunch of throat clearing about history and philosophy and economic theory, <laughs> blah, 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 today you finally got around to policy analysis. And then now uh, you have not one, not two, but three uh, of Cato's top policy experts uh, to uh, give you the inside skinny on what actually it means to be a policy wonk, uh, not only cover talking about the issues that they are covering or interested in, but also talking a bit about uh, how they actually cover those issues. So uh, without any more ado, let's dive in. I will introduce all three speakers in the order in which they will speak, and then they will take the platform, and we'll leave plenty of time for Q&A at the end of their remarks. Uh, first up is Jim Harper, who's a senior fellow at Cato, uh, and who covers uh, privacy, cybersecurity, telecommunications, intellectual property, counterterrorism, government transparency, and digital currency. That's enough, I think. A couple things. Um, <laughs> So uh, uh, Jim, among other uh, uh, accomplishments, is a founding member of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and uh, Integrity Advisory Committee. They're doing great work. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he also uh, recently co-edited the book, Terrorizing Ourselves, How U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It. And he's the author of Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. Following Jim is Justin Logan, who's Director of Foreign Policy Studies at Cato. He's an expert on grand strategy, international relations theory, and American foreign policy. Uh, his current research is focusing on uh, the shifting balance of power in Asia, particularly uh, with respect to China, and the formation of U.S. Uh, grand strategy uh, in a unipolar world. Uh, his articles have appeared in International Security, Foreign Policy, National Interest, Harvard International Review, Orbis, Foreign Service Journal, uh, and the usual suspects of policy magazines. Finally, Jeff Myron, whom you've seen uh, earlier this week, uh, <clears throat> and therefore uh, doesn't need an introduction, but this is my job, so I'll do it anyway, uh, is Director of uh, Economic Studies uh, here at Cato, and in his spare time, Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Department of Economics at Harvard. Um, and Jeff is the author of, among other things, Libertarianism from A to Z. So with that, I'll turn the podium over to Jim. Thank you. Thank you, Brink. And I do hope that this ends is a sort of culmination. But it, I'll be less formal, actually. And, and I, I, I would hope that this would be a culmination, but I'm sure it won't be. Um, I, I, I must confess that, it, that uh, I'm a little more nervous speaking to this group than I probably ordinarily would be because I, I, knowing you, who you are and the fact that you're here, you're going to be people who are uh, more engaged, you're, you're following current events, you're focused, uh, you think carefully about uh, what's going on in the world, um, you're, you're paying attention. And, and that, that's hard. I'd rather have a, a, an audience that was relatively disengaged that wasn't paying attention, um, muddle-headed, uh, whatever the case may be. I'd, I'd frankly prefer to be testifying in Congress this afternoon. <laughs> it's a favorite, that's a favorite opener of mine, and it, and it sort of goes to, to uh, how I think about influence, which I'm going to come back to a little bit. 
Um, and I thought first I'd just sort of give some bio. Who who is this person, and how does how does a person end up being uh, a Cato Institute scholar? Um, I'm a Californian and uh, we're, plan to live in California forever. But then the economy was really bad, and uh, having been sort of uh, educated to the wrong ways of Washington during law school, uh, found no law opportunities for me in the San Francisco Bay Area when I got out of school. Uh, there had been a sort of um, a, a nice election, I, I thought, in 1994, and so I picked myself up in, in 95 and moved out here to be a Republican revolutionary. Uh, it's embarrassing to say now. Um, because the Republicans quite quick, quickly learned to uh, try to seek the benefits of power rather than uh, trying to advance the good government aims that I think mostly animated the the sweeping election of 94. I like to think that I stayed exactly uh, where I was ideologically, which forced me to move ultimately, literally, to, to Cato. And I've been here um, close to 11 years now, uh, an interim after I left the Hill in 2000, having worked on the Hill for about five years. Uh, for about uh, four years between 2000 and 2004, I had my own lobbying consulting firm uh, working with tech, telecom and e-commerce firms. And I was lucky enough, because clients are you know, really annoying, I was lucky enough to, uh, to link up with the Cato Institute where I could work on the right answer. That was the most important thing to me. Uh, when you're a lobbyist, you kind of have to work on whoever's offering uh, the money. You can, you can try to guide them in the right direction, but you, but you can't always do that. And so you've got to go sell the wrong answer on Capitol Hill. And that really left a bad taste in my mouth on the few occasions when I had to do it. Uh, Cato gave me the opportunity to, to work for the right answer, to speak truth, to power, to however you want to think about it. Uh, and in the areas that I work on, um, really try to look down the horizon. The stuff that I work on, uh, in, in many instances, there isn't already a policy. And so if we set public policy in the right direction now, we won't have to go in and correct it later. Um, so Cato does great work on um, Social Security. During the time I've been here, there have been a, a couple windows of opportunity for Social Security reform, for example. My hope in my issue areas is that we don't get to where there's a Social Security system that we have to undo all the difficulties that there are there. So, for example, on the question of a national ID, which is sort of a signature issue of mine, I've worked very hard to make sure that we don't have one so we don't have to try and unravel uh, a national ID at some point in the future. But I, but I got ahead of myself. Uh, the issue areas that I work on uh, are, are I largely re I refer to as information policy. And then when I, when I started on it at Cato, they asked me, you know, they allowed me to to sort of create my own title, and I thought about it in serious ways. I uh, took Director of Information Policy Studies uh, because it's, it's information policy that I work on. Um, that originally broke down into three simple areas. Uh, privacy, uh, right and wrong with personal information use, which is the sort of where I did the majority of my work. Uh, also telecommunications, how information gets from point A to point B. Uh, at, at that time, it was really mostly about um, telecommunications regulation. That's less important now compared to things like Internet governance, uh, which are rising in importance. Uh, and finally, uh, intellectual property, so your copyright, patent, trademark, and other such doctrines. Again, I worked the most on privacy. Over the years, I've added a few things to the portfolio. Uh, the work on the DHS Privacy Committee, which has been oh so successful, I say oh so facetiously, um, that made me realize that that you couldn't have a good conversation about privacy in this country 
if you didn't have some handle on um, counterterrorism. DHS, which is maybe actually the, the, the natural role of an institution like that, uh, has a security mania that you can't really um, counter, you can't uh, balance against if you don't understand security issues really well. So I got together with uh, Chris Preble and Ben Friedman when we did a uh, years-long uh, uh, program on counterterrorism. Coming up with not a libertarian counterterrorism program, but just a solid counterterrorism program that doesn't indulge uh, what, what terrorism invites from victim states like ours was on 911, uh, which is overreaction. Uh, it's a very difficult problem to get uh, a, a, a competitive media and a competitive politics not to try to outbid each other at scaring the public, but that's what we have to do is, is recognize that overreaction is the goal of terrorism, and we've got to counsel against that and try to try to stop it. Uh, just a couple more weeks' work, and we will have defeated terrorism by getting everyone not to overreact. I do deadpan a little bit. Um, try, to watch, try to watch for it. Um, I've, uh, I've also, uh, more recently, but for several years now, been working on um, transparency. I think, I think government transparency, and I mean data transparency, as distinct from Freedom of Information Act type stuff, finding out what, what, uh, uh, what happened. Data transparency so that real-time publication of data about the government's deliberations, management, and results uh, can change the ground on which all the debates happen, a public that's more aware of the waste that exists. Now, we all, in, a, in, in our community, we recognize it pretty well, but most people out in the land don't have the same uh, awareness that we do of how much waste there is in government. But if we can deliver data about the dollars that move through Washington to no end, in the same way that baseball statistics get on the back page of the sports section every day, uh, all of our debates will get so much better. And I think um, data-based government transparency can, can help, uh, help with that. I've also done a lot of work recently on Bitcoin. Uh, that protocol is really, really special. Uh, when I left California in, in 95, I managed to, to miss uh, .com. I'd be like some kind of billionaire or something if I just sat there for six more months. Uh, and when I saw the Bitcoin protocol come around, I said, I am not going to miss this one. <laughs> so I've been working a lot on Bitcoin, which I think is a, a, a fascinating protocol. Just briefly, and I think I've probably already gone a little long for your tastes, um, I, I, one of the most interesting questions that we might discuss is, is how influence works. How do we individually and how does Cato collectively move society in the right direction. And I think that's something we're always thinking about and always deciding on um, for ourselves. Uh, you know, the, the well-recognized model is, is what Cato's been doing for so long, uh, putting out books, putting out papers, putting together policy fora, uh, influencing people, so broadcasting our ideas to other smart people who might help, help carry the message. But, but things are also changing. Uh, I talked a little bit about how transparency might change debates entirely. If the information environment in which debates are conducted is different from what it is now, there's more information about government spending and government waste, um, that's going to change every single debate, and I think that's a real opportunity. Obviously, the media environment is changing. You can go directly to your audience. I don't have to get, although I'd love to and I can, 
I don't have to get George Will to pick up something that I've written. I can take it out directly to people. And so we spend a lot more time on, on Facebook and Twitter and other, other social media. Uh, I think every scholar has a different way of, of influencing the public. Some testify uh, in Congress. Some spend a lot of time on TV. Some are big, fancy academics from Harvard University. Um, but we all, so we, we all have our way of influencing. And I think it's, it's very interesting to, to think about and to learn from others. With that, that was a segue, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Learning from others. <laughs> Let's hear from our colleagues. All right. Great. Well, thanks to all of you for being here. Um, it's a pleasure to be able to share, share some thoughts on a topic that I think I understand I'm what I'm supposed to talk about. Um, and I'll only mention, I didn't know Jim gave a little brief autobiographical sketch. I'll only point out that when he came here in 1995, I was 17. So I'll defer to your wizened elder status. Um, <laughs> On, on any matters that you choose to, to, to invoke that uh, status on. So they asked us to talk a little bit about, in very broad strokes, as our 10-minute time horizon would indicate, um, the perspective we bring to the policy issues that we work on, the principles that we sort of deploy when we think about um, policy questions, and then to describe in some detail, but again briefly, the nuts and bolts of what we do, um, wh what it's like to work at a think tank. So um, I will say a little bit that my background is weird in the sense that I came and worked at Cato as the intern coordinator before I, I had done any graduate work and became uh, a researcher in defense and foreign policy and then an analyst before going to graduate school. So I sort of had an uh, unorthodox career trajectory um, that people, you know, maybe aspiring think tankers probably shouldn't try to emulate because it was very strange. Um, but so I, I actually got to learn, you know, what it was like, you know, if you think of this as a sort of meatpacking factory or something, you know, I learned about the abattoir, um, everything to the sales line. So um, feel free to ask me about the abattoir uh, after, the, after the forum. So the perspective or principles that we bring, and so Cato is a weird institute in a lot of ways, but in particular in the sense that we don't have – our foreign policy studies uh, groups are not divided regionally, right? So if you go to CSIS or Brookings, the Japan person works on Japanese economic issues, Japanese domestic politics, uh, Japanese international politics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we're more functionally delineated, right? So we have one group that does exclusively trade issues, um, and they work on bilateral trade agreements, multilateral trade agreements, WTO stuff, et cetera. And that's what they work, and they work those issues globally. We also have an economic development group that works on not just what used to be called third world countries, but also on things like European integration, um, and other questions about what the academy would call sort of IPE sorts of issues. Um, and then we have our department, which I sort of morbidly refer to as the guns, bombs, and dead people department, um, which explains the sort of pallor that you see on my face. <laughs> um, and so what, is, what, what does libertarianism really have to say about the guns and the bombs and the dead people and, 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 and where, what are the principles that we base our work on? Well, the, 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 the first principle is that, um, in general, war has bad consequences for liberty. Um, and so it, it bears saying that not in every instance are the libertarian implications of war worse than the libertarian implications of non-war, right? It's not the case that libertarian principles necessitate 
um, pacifism or, or indicate in some way that in every instance the absence of war is superior to the existence of war. Um, but in general, wars historically have created extraordinary concentrations of executive power. They've raised taxes. They've raised legislative powers. They've raised um, a whole host of deleterious concepts, abrogated civil liberties in very important ways. And so we think that those things should be looked on with a certain amount of skepticism, not to say uh, 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 lockstep opposition, but we worry about these sorts of things a lot. And so in thinking about what I wanted to say, it's always useful to sort of remind ourselves not just of the sort of anti-militaristic orientation of the American founders, but the expressly anti-military orientations of people who we look on very favorably in a lot of other political contexts. At the end of the 18th century, John Randolph uh, gave a speech just denigrating, dripping contempt onto the idea of having a standing army. Um, And he talked about the military parade which meets the eye in almost every direction excites the gall of our citizens. They feel adjusted indignation at the sight of loungers who live upon the public, who consume the fruits of their honest industry under the pretext of protecting them from a foreign yoke. They put no confidence, sir, in the protection of a handful of ragamuffins. I mean, this is like code pink level stuff here, you know. General Betrayus, Benjamin Rush, who many people know, recommended the establishment of a peace museum in Federal Hall to offer a favorable contrast to another room inscribed National Glory, in which the horrors of war would be depicted. Over the portals of the Department of War, there would be painted the captions, an office for butchering the human species, a widow and orphan-making office. So these guys were radicals by the standards of the contemporary, certainly right wing, but even the left wing in in the present context. So those are actually a bit much for me, Uh, but it's worth thinking about uh, the sort of intellectual zeitgeist uh, at the founding of the country. Keep in mind, this was less than a generation away from a period in which marauding foreign empires in North America actually burned the White House to the ground. Uh, so people like to talk about, well, the world has changed, Justin, don't you understand? It has changed. There aren't any European empires rampaging across North America. Um, and, and this was, again, a discussion about the formation of a standing army. So we, I think, take that skepticism and that cynicism, if you prefer, about war um, into our analysis of war in the contemporary age. Um, It's certainly true, though, that libertarianism or or a sort of spare set of libertarian principles can't answer in themselves for you questions like, how dangerous is the world today? To whom is it dangerous? What sorts of dangers are the most proximate to the United States and why? Uh, Libertarianism isn't a theory of everything. It's not a theory of international politics. But it does give us some insights about how to think about these questions. And one of the things that I think is worth keeping in the front of our minds is the fact that the national security bureaucracy, which gives us a lot of the information about the threats they're paid to deal with, doesn't have the incentive structure in place to sort of maximize the national interest, right? That, that's just not something um, that happens. And so the information that comes to us comes from, in a sort of public choice sort of analytic frame, from people who not necessarily have nefarious sort of 
Marxist or military industrial considerations, but they just don't see the big picture. They see their little analytical slice of it. They went into a particular field because they think it's important, just like prosecutors go into becoming prosecutors because they think that uh, crime is an enormous problem, and they come with it from that particular angle. So we tend to point out that public choice analysis applies um, to international politics and national security as well. On the more sort of nuts and bolts questions, um, this is where the real blinding cynicism might come out. Um, I think in terms of talking about what we do, it's worth changing the question a little bit and talking about, I was going to say who we do, but that has a whole different connotation, I guess. Um, the audience is to whom we speak, let's say. Um, and I think you can disaggregate them in three ways, right? So you can, and I use this term with all the appropriate contempt, there are thought leaders um, in Washington and the 95 corridor more generally. And with those people, I would lump Jim's aforementioned ignorant legislators. Um, so that's sort of one group of people that we try to reach. Um, the, another group of people that, I, 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 speaking for myself, we've spent a lot of time trying to reach out to are other scholars, right? Not just um, the sort of prominent think tankers that you see on Sunday cable news shows, um, but also scholars in the academy. You know, one of them is sitting right here, but we found it very useful um, in terms of producing good work product to interact and sort of cross-pollinate with um, people in the academy. And I think on national security issues, for a variety of reasons people may want to talk about, um, we have sort of a friendlier audience uh, in the academy than certainly we do in Washington. And if you look at uh, the sort of hawkishness of different groups, I think national security, international relations professors tend to be the most dovish. The public tends to be the next most dovish and the most hawkish by large measure are people who work on national security policy in Washington. So I can get into a whole political science thing about selection effects, and I think I can explain why that's the case. Um, but we've found it very fruitful to interact with scholars. Um, and then, of course, there's the public. Um, there's directly writing op-eds. There's um, blogging and tweeting and writing books that you know we hope people might possibly read. Um, but if you look at the political science literature on how public opinion gets formed, it paints a macabre tale of most people are partisans and most partisans get their opinions sort of beamed into their skulls by co-partisan elites. Um, and so I think for my own, and maybe I'm sort of talking out of school here, my view is that trying to lean as much as possible on these sort of thought leaders and on other scholars um, for a department that's pretty small, depending on how you count, we're about six or seven people, um, is probably a better use of time because of the sort of bang for the buck factor that you get from if you move one George Will, to use Jim's example, you know, that's much better than, you know, 10 um, um, op-eds in the, uh, I forgot my own hometown paper, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, um, you know, trying to reach people that way. Um, so I think those three audiences are maybe better statements about what we do um, than sort of rattling off the actual mechanics, but I've gone over a little bit as well, and if we want to talk about the actual mechanics, I'd be happy to do so in the Q&A. 
Sitting hurts my back, so I'm going to stand up. Um, most of you probably realize that libertarians aren't good at following directions, so I'm going to exemplify that uh, right now, mainly because I feel you've all have heard my perspective and the Cato perspective on economic policy and how we analyze it and think about it and have a good introduction to a lot of what we uh, do. I will emphasize a couple things from all of that, but then I'm just going to launch into a topic that I think is interesting and, and mishandled throughout academia and the press might be useful to discuss. So the perspective of the economics analysis and related stuff is not that markets are perfect, that we have theorems from economic textbooks that tell us that laissez-faire is the best possible economic system because marginal uh, cost will equal price everywhere, blah, 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 all that stuff that some of you saw in Ec 101. Our perspective is markets do a pretty good job, okay? but there is monopoly, there are all sorts of imperfections out there. But the, the interventions usually make things worse, not better. That's not a theorem for every single intervention, but we discussed lots of examples back on Monday, and that's the general perspective. So we don't start out just asserting over and over again uh, no intervention could ever possibly be beneficial. We try to demonstrate that actual proposed uh, and utilized interventions are, in fact, okay, usually not helpful and, in some cases, make things much worse. Similarly, there's a view of, there's a defense of leaving people alone in market settings based on the idea that consumers are fully rational, they know what they want, they know their own preferences, they can get the appropriate information, they can go out and make good choices. So there's no way to make their choices better because they're already doing what the best possible thing they could do. That again is not necessarily the Cato perspective because clearly lots of people do silly stu things, stupid things, many of them small, a few of them large. If you had to base your defense of free markets on everybody being hyper-rational in the standard textbook way all the time, I think you'd lose and you should lose. But the question is, do interventions make things better in a world where people are less than fully rational? And our perspective is frequently not. So a simple case is drug prohibition. Let's say that some people uh, don't think very carefully about the possibility of getting addiction, they don't think about the possible negative health effects from drug use, et cetera, and they make perhaps bad decisions to use drugs or alcohol or other things. Then what happens if you outlaw those substances? Then not only do those consumers get the negative effects of continuing to consume those things that they would get even in a legal market, but they get impure versions of those commodities. They risk being arrested, which is really bad for your health and productivity. They have to buy from criminals, so they risk violence in the mere act of purchasing instead of just going down uh, to the local CVS and so on. So there's all sorts of negatives created by the attempt to protect people from their irrationalities. So that's rarely the right way to go, or at least it should be done in very mild and gentle nudge ways, not in aggressive prohibit everything in sight ways. Okay. So in economics, we cover the huge range of issues that uh, we talked about on Monday. I'm not going to sort of belabor that. I'd like to just really do one more example because it's fun and it's interesting, and that I think will give you at least as good a perspective uh, as uh, reviewing any of those other details. So what should be done? What's the story with Greece? Okay. Why is it such a mess? Okay. What should be done about it to, to fix it and all that sort of stuff? My starting point is the following. The euro never made much sense. Why not? Well, what were the arguments for the euro? There was a half of a good argument. The half good argument was if people can go across borders and not have to change currencies, that's convenient. It's obviously nice that if you came here from Kentucky to attend Cato U, you didn't have to convert your Kentucky dollars to DC dollars. But the fact is that Europe had been dealing with multiple currencies for decades. Okay, there were 
was trivial as electronics got better and better because you just swiped your card in whatever country you were in, and it got charged to your, your bank account at some point in some converted currency. There was markets in which you could hedge currency risk for businesses and all that. It just wasn't a big deal, but it was a sort of mild reason. The other reason that was given, the big reason given by the economists in favor was, if we have each country trying to do its own monetary policy, a lot of them are going to do it badly. They're going to make all sorts of mistakes. In particular, the southern countries like Italy are going to have super high inflation, and that's bad. What we really want is Germany to be able to control every country in Europe's monetary policy, because only Germans really, really, really hate inflation. Okay? <laughs> so, and you know, there is a teeny, teeny grain of truth in that. But okay, the notion that anybody knows how to do monetary policy well was always a leap. Okay? And in order to have that common policy across all these countries, you had to have the appropriate fiscal union. You couldn't have every country able to borrow at German interest rates if that country was not going to be able to grow and produce and be able to pay back debts at German rates. So creating the euro was virtually guaranteed to create a precisely a situation like Greece and other periphery countries where they could borrow very cheaply. Everybody assumed that all the debt Greece took on was, in effect, guaranteed by the whole Eurozone. And so they borrowed and borrowed and borrowed, spent and spent and spent, okay, rather than investing with all the borrowing. Okay, and so their economy's a mess. So if the Euro never made sense in the first place, then letting Greece out of the Euro or letting the Euro blow up entirely isn't a negative. It's, if anything, a positive. Okay, so that sort of complication that creeps into every discussion of what to do about Greece, well, we can't do that because that might make the euro break up. That's a complete sort of nonsense. That uh, should be the objective, not, not the caution. <laughs> to be trying to get rid of the euro. Or maybe if like, France and Germany both want to be in the eurozone, fine. Let, let them have it. Um, the next thing is that Greece will never pay back its debts. It is completely inconceivable that even if they started miraculously growing at 3 4% a year, which is completely inconceivable, okay, that they can pay back anything like the magnitude. Okay? So continued bailouts that basically take money from German, French, other rich country taxpayers, okay, shuttle it through the Greek banks and buy up this debt, okay, and then get it put it on the uh, balance sheets of the European Central Bank and the IMF and so on. Okay? That's not helping Greece because the money's not going to Greek citizens. It's going to, to bail out German and French banks who invested okay, in Greece. Okay? And it's never going to do anything to get Greece to grow again. Okay? And so it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to continue those bailouts. Okay? So what can, should anybody do? There are no good solutions. There are no solutions of any kind if by solution you mean something that fixes everything, that makes it all OK. Greece is poor. It has moronic economic policies. Okay? It has tons of barriers into opening new businesses, tons of barriers into expanding new industries. It has retirement ages for people, civil servants of 53. It has super generous pensions. It's just laden with things which guarantee it's never going to grow appropriately. So even if you do everything else I'm going to say for Greece, it's probably still going to be a disaster for a long time because it's probably never going to reform its economic policies. But its best chance is that it gets out of the euro and it defaults on absolutely all of its existing debts, external debts. Now, that means that the banks are at some level sort of kaput because they're full of all of this euro-denominated stuff. So the Greek government is going to have to, over some very sort of long weekend, they convert everything to drachmas, announce a new currency, say that all existing accounts are now denominated in drachmas, and try to simply be its own country and its own monetary policy with its own currency. Now, if it does that, one good thing does happen. Okay? It's a 
as a flip side. It means that it's now really much, much cheaper to invest in Greece, to put factories in Greece, to visit Greece as a tourist and all that, because the euro is not going to trade one for one with, I mean, sorry, the drachma is not going to trade one for one with the euro, and it's going to trade it, you know, 0.2 to one or 0.1 to one. It's going to make everything in Greece really, really cheap for people who are on dollars or euros or yen or anything like that. That might stimulate investment. It certainly will probably stimulate some tourism. So if that happens and Greece adopted better economic policies, it has a chance of growing at a reasonable rate. If it continues doing what it's doing, okay, if keep having these really bad policies imposed by the IMF and the ECB of big tax increases, then it never is going to be able to grow. It's never going to pay back any debts, okay, and it's just a complete unmitigated disaster. So that is all completely consistent with the way we think about economic policies uh, at Cato. So we look at the facts. We look at what the policies are actually doing. We think about the fact that there might not be any good alternatives. There's not choice A, which is terrible, choice B, which is even worse, but choice C, which makes everything perfect. There's frequently only choice A and B. And the smart thing is to choose the one which is less bad, okay, even though that is politically difficult to defend and very unsatisfying. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Uh, we'll open up the floor to questions now. Uh, raise your hand. Come up to the uh, the mic. Okay, this is uh, this is for Jim. Jim, I'm a retired senior budget <coughs> analyst for the Department of Transportation. I was very excited by your concept of information uh, for structuring uh, logical debate. I guess is what you were getting at. Uh, could you elaborate in some detail on some of your ideas? Well, sure. Thanks. I didn't. I didn't plant that question. Um, everything that everything that the government does can be reduced into into data form so that it can be um, made available to the public through the internet, through web you know web services, apps, whatever it may be. Uh, it's harder in some cases and easier in others. Uh, budget data is probably easier. And in fact, there's a law called the Data Act, the um, Data Accountability and Transparency Act, that requires the government to start publishing budgeting and spending data in uniform formats across the government. Uh, that's that's being implemented right now. It's certainly possible to go off the rails with that with that implementation. But having uh, well-defined data structures for every part of the budgeting and spending cycle, and then getting data from all the agencies into those data structures. Uh, can really produce a sea change in the availability of information to people. Can you give me perhaps a simple illustrative example of, of how this would work? Uh, sure. Uh, the, question was, uh, the further question was for a simple illustrative example of how this would work. Uh, I've been uh, sort of for a couple of years now been uh, beating on the government uh, because of the lack of a machine-readable government organization chart. Uh, there should be a system of identifiers that tell you what all the agencies and all the bureaus and all the programs and all the projects are in government and how they relate to their parent. Um, just like you have in any functioning organization, you know who reports to whom. There are about four different versions. They're all in PDF documents that computers cannot, cannot consume. Uh, there should be, and if the Data Act is well implemented, there will be a machine-readable government organization chart. So computers can know, uh, using identifiers, what what all the agencies are. Congress should use those identifiers in the appropriations process and say $200 million to 
the Department of uh, Transportation's Bureau of Transportation Statistics. I don't know if such a such an office exists, but those that that, that identifier tells any reader, not just not, not just on the inside, but it helps with internal management. But on the outside, oh, I know now as a voter that this bill was sending two hundred million dollars uh, from the public fisc to this particular agency, and when it comes to outlays. Uh, the contracts that, that are entered into and then the actual funds expended. All of those should be attached uh, through data to the agency doing this uh, and back to the congressional vote that moved the money for that purpose. So you, so you sort of close the cycle for the public. I know that this vote in Congress uh, back in October led to this road being built in the following September. I also know that this other vote led to this bomb being dropped in Syria. And people will be able to make their uh, decisions about their elected representatives uh, illuminated by real information about what, what those votes produced. This can all be done with data. You know, Amazon came, came into the world um, because information about books was in digital forms that Jeff Bezos could use. If we get information about government into digital form, entrepreneurs will be, to, will be able to sift through it, and one of them will build the website or the app or whatever it is that reaches millions of people and empowers them to ask hard questions about what's going on here. Right now, the information deficit has the public disempowered. It's a libertarian public. We know this from the work of David Bose and David Kirby, uh, and they'll get more of the results they want if they have access to the information about what's happening here. hope that's helpful. This side. Um, it's really fun to come to Cato and think about ideas like open borders and free banking and uh, heroin vending machines. <laughs> Um, but one of the ideas I've learned about in this internship is the idea of the Overton window, those policies which have enough private and public support where their implementation is actually feasible. Um, so I was wondering if each of you could give an example of a policy change in your area of expertise that you think um, is in the Overton window that might actually have a possibility of being implemented. I already talked, so you guys have to. All right. Well, for, for for me, that's really easy. The the my main area's expertise is drug legalization. So, full marijuana legalization for the first time since 1937 seems like it might happen. Now that said, uh, there's serious risks. Several of the Republican candidates have said that as soon as they're elected, they'll direct the Justice Department to start enforcing the federal marijuana laws in all the states that have passed state legalizations and maybe even the medicalizations and so on. So it could all come crashing down really fast, but public opinion definitely has moved substantially and is now a majority, according to Gallup, in favor. So there's prob we're probably in that window. For my part, I think it's, it depends on what you posit that the the stopping point is, right? I think from a public point of view, a lot of the things that we write about here, getting the United States out of NATO, having a smaller military, etc., when you do public opinion polling on it, um, it does surprisingly well. It does certainly better than it does among thought leaders in Washington. Um, but the problem is it's not salient for the public. Uh, it doesn't bring people to the polls to say, unless you advocate getting out of NATO, I won't vote for you. Um, Ed Crane, the founder and former president of Cato, used to say that, you know, politics is about, you know, giving people either an electric shock or a blast of sugar water. And people like sugar water and they don't like being shocked. And so that's how people vote, right? Um, and so things that we write about um, – are sort of abstruse until they're not. 
And then once they're not, from our vantage point, argumentatively, it's it's too late a lot of times. So I think the Syria non-war so far-ish, uh, if we want to call it that, um, is something where uh, the sort of elite and mass level politics combined to stop something dumb that the president wanted to do. So I uh, sad to say that's probably the best I can do. I guess I've, I've took advantage of my colleagues to, to think of think of answers because they're not they're not easy actually from within it's harder to recognize your work on the Overton window but I like that concept and I believe that Cato does a, a lot of great work to to throw open the Overton window in a lot of areas. My first thought went to not my own work but John John Mueller, who, when I first discovered him, was kind of giving this sort of shaky handed talk about his theory that there weren't thousands of terror cells in the United States in 2002, 2003. And literally, I, you know, I, I kind of perceived that he was nervous about, about presenting this thesis. But I asked him to come speak to the DHS Privacy Committee, and, and uh, Cato made him a senior fellow here. He went out um, sort of uh, cutting so deeply against the currents of, of, uh, of public opinion by saying, I don't think that we are about to be taken under by a second 911. And that thought leadership, I think, has had tremendous influence. He reports uh, giving this talk, you know, at events where members of Congress were present. And they wouldn't say it publicly, but they would sidle up to him afterwards and say, you know what, I think you're probably right. And getting that across to people, um, putting people in a position to be confident in the United States' indomitability is very, very important, and I think, I think John Mueller's had a tremendous influence. Uh, the work I might have done that I could, could raise is, is the TSA. Um, very early on, uh, more you know, at a time when it wasn't really comfortable to say so, I was saying that the TSA should go away. It should, it should be not, not diminished, not uh, this or that, but should actually be, re- be uh, eliminated so that airports and airlines uh, would have responsibility for security once again. Um, there's surprisingly, uh, surprisingly to me, there's there's good public support for that. I don't think it's going to happen real soon, so I can't declare success on that. But is an example for you of where I think we're pushing limits and appropriately. Just to throw in a couple of additional thoughts, this is a a time horizon that Cato and other think tanks straddle. That is, on the one hand, we want to exploit these windows of opportunity when they arise, but perhaps the more fundamental task of a place like Cato uh, is to contribute to opening these windows in the first place. Uh, So as uh, Justin mentioned, basically all good reforms are completely futile and hopeless until they're not. Uh, And it can feel like that last little part of the sentence is never going to come. And uh, so uh, the Foreign Policy Department hasn't had a, a, a great 15 years since 9-11, so uh, people's sort of animal spirits uh, can flag uh, after uh, 10, 15, 20 years of of getting beaten uh, up a lot. Um, But then, uh, so until a year ago, uh, it seemed like one of our most hopeless causes was uh, was police militarization, uh, sort of the treatment by the police of the citizenry as basically uh, like they're an occupying power. Uh, we did lots of stuff on this. No one paid any attention to it until suddenly it became a big issue. And now people are paying a lot of attention to it. So, uh, again, this requires uh, a certain kind of, uh, of psychic constitution uh, to endure being doing completely futile things until they're not futile anymore. Thank you so much. Hi. So my question is directed at uh, Dr. Harper. 
Um, I was wondering, this is in, uh, a really an issue that divides a lot of libertarians. I was just wondering your personal opinion on it. Uh, net neutrality. Does the government have a role specifically to prevent, uh, protect the private property of individuals that could get exploited by um, bigger and larger, larger institutions? Or is it Title II an encroachment on um, the sanctity of the internet? What's your perspective? So um, in, in brief, I think net neutrality is a good engineering principle. And it's a good, uh, you know, sort of base, basic structure of the internet. But I don't think it's good to have it enforced by law, much less by uh, bureaucrats and regulators uh, in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, telecommunications companies own their infrastructure. And it's communications infrastructure. Uh, in, a lot, in, a, in a lot of places in the world, the government has enough control over the communications infrastructure to try to use it to, to affect political debate. And so we don't want, we just don't want uh, a mingling between the two. Now, that is, I don't, I don't say that because I think that our telecommunications markets are perfect or, or even working well. But if you wanted the FCC to get involved in something and, and, and help to fix that, uh, the first place would be by releasing more spectrum and allowing spectrum to be traded uh, like, like real property so that it could reach its highest and best use. Um, then we would have internet access that was quite good. Competition among providers for broadband would almost certainly prevent uh, even the rare occurrence of some kind of throttling or some kind of uh, censorious behavior on, on, uh, on the part of companies. So I, I think markets can work in this area. I don't think they're 100, working 100% fine. A lot of advocates on my side you know, sort of make the claim that the markets are working just fine or sort of hand-wavingly markets will figure it out. Um, uh, it's not. It's not really working very well. But the FCC can fix it by actually producing more freedom in this area, rather than by restricting the freedom of um, telecommunications companies. Thanks. Okay. Hi. Um, my name is Dan Gold. I have a brief comment and then a question. So, Dr. Harper, I think your point that John Mueller's had a big influence on a lot of people is spot on, and I'm living proof of that. He's how I heard about the Cato Institute. So I guess Great. indirectly the reason I'm here. His paper on how improbable nuclear terrorism is. Nuclear, sorry. Excellent, um, excellent, great. So my question to you, you said you dealt a lot with intellectual property, and I've always thought that that had two libertarian arguments on either side, because on one side, we're supposed to be strong defenders of property rights, but on the other side, they create government enforcement monopolies. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on what a libertarian view on intellectual property would look like. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you something about influence and discretion. Libertarians are divided on this, and if I wanted to work on it full-time, I would try to lay down the, the, the position of all libertarians on these issues. But they literally are. Uh, many believe that intellectual property, being a form of property, should be defended. And so copyright is an appropriate doctrine, and maybe we, with some changes around the length of the term and things like that, it, it'll, it'll, it'll go well. Same with patent. There are others that recognize that, uh, that intellectual property rights prevent you from using your lungs and throat in the way you want at a party or in a bar. You sing, it may not be true, this week there was some news about the happy birthday song not actually being under copyright. I wasn't paying close attention to that. Uh, sing a particular song and you owe someone some money. So that's an that's a impingement on your freedom to do with your body what you will. 
um, there's fairly equal division. Different segments of the libertarian community, you can you know <laughs> lean this way or lean that way, but there there is division. Uh, I've made it sort of a, a, a uh, because I don't want to work on it full time and don't want to catch javelins from behind. Uh, I've made a conscientious choice to start to sort of try to host debate on that, but not lay out the one uh, final answer for all time. You're you're right that it's that people are divided. Jeff. So one way to think about that to balance those two views is to ask whether intellectual government enforcement of intellectual property actually promotes production of more arts, music, innovation, et cetera. And the evidence is surprisingly unsupportive. It's not completely one way or the other, but comparisons across countries, industries, types of uh, innovation, et cetera, that are or are not subject to government intellectual property protection for reasons of historical accident and institutional details, you don't see big differences in the rate of innovation. So the notion that you need the government to do this in order to get innovation don't seem compelling. And there are also some clear costs, things like patent trolls that use the government system to throw a lot of grist in the mill and maybe make things worse uh, also goes in that direction. Let me just add something since I just wrote a paper that, right. that <coughs> addresses, among other things, uh, intellectual property issues. Um, first, although for sure there is kind of at the philosophical level scope for disagreement among libertarians on uh, the propriety and extent of intellectual property protection, nonetheless in real life on the ground, uh, self-identified libertarians who work in this issue full-time, I would say the overwhelming majority of those libertarian scholars would be on the dovish rather than hawkish side of copyright and patent issues. That is, uh, the uh, the vast majority that I am familiar with uh, tend to regard that even if there is appropriate uh, scope for some level of copyright or patent protection, the policy status quo leans too heavily in the direction of extending monopoly privileges to uh, IP holders and uh, doesn't lean uh, <coughs> nearly uh, enough in the direction of uh, exercising <coughs> normal tangible property rights free of IP restrictions. So that's... Uh, just a sociological observation. Um, beyond that, there's the question of, uh, just a sort of question for think tanks. What do you do when not everybody on your team agrees? Um, it can be something that, uh, that produces a lot of anxiety. Uh, we think that we should influence the world, and we can't influence the world unless we're all singing from the same hymn book, so we need to come up with a common answer, and we need to have an institution, an, a Cato policy on this or that. Uh, that was... I think a, a much easier line to take when Cato was a much smaller place. But over time, as you build up and have dozens of, of, uh, of uh, people on full-time staff and dozens more who are affiliated, there's just no possible way you're going to have lots of clever, smart uh, uh, folks agree about everything. Uh, and to me, let 100 flowers bloom is really the only practical way to deal with this. Uh, it's, we're joined by a common general worldview. We don't have to agree about everything. Uh, and uh, so let your best arguments fly, and uh, karma will sort it all out. That's, that is how uh, I've gone over time from being uh, uptight when people disagreed with me uh, about uh, issues at Cato to thinking it's okay. I thought Brink was going to say let your best arguments fly and not your fists. That's probably true, too. Yeah. Hi, I'm Brooke Manville. I'm an independent consultant uh, working in business here in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. 
Uh, Jeff, I wanted to pick up uh, your your uh, narrative about the Greek situation. I, th I thought it was elegantly stated. Um, I, I wanted to just throw it to you and the rest of the panel, a kind of a case study of, um, you know, do markets really work? Uh, so the way you laid it out, you know, for many of us is, you know, just a, an elegant description of the train wreck that's been going on and is in slow motion and is about, about to happen with Greece. That, you know, they've, they've got more debt. They're not going to get out, as you said. They're never going to pay. Uh, there's going to be some kind of, um, you know, restructuring that will be forced upon them. But in the meantime, you know, people are buying the debt. The, the, the money is flowing in. Markets are propping up um, what's been the case. Um, I'm thinking of, of Judy Shelton's discussion this afternoon about how, you know, decoupling from a firm standard is just a ticking time bomb. Lots of people see it. My question is, even though people see it, markets keep going and working and, and propping up um, frail, frail structures, if you like, or risky structures. Um, and how, as a libertarian, do you think about, you know, less is more, non-intervention, but you watch these ticking time bombs that have potentially systemic risk? How do you think about, you know, the greater good in, in just being blown up and knowing for the last 10 years it was going to happen? Uh, and, you know, is, is I told you so enough? For the, for the libertarian, or is there something more that one needs to think about? I'm not quite sure I understand the question. I mean, I think about that issue a lot as an investor, I mean, where to put my own money, because I think that there are a lot of assets that are misvalued, but it's very hard to figure out what to do about that, because on the one hand, I think the fundamentals are probably going to change in such a way that those assets will have much lower or much higher value. Okay? And yet, if you think the governments are going to intervene to prop up those asset values, as you know, U.S. government did with the banks and all that stuff, then you have to not only forecast the fundamental values, but you have to forecast what government is going to do to right. interfere with that process. Right. Right. And that's just sort of impossible. So I'm not sure but, I mean, where libertarianism are, comes in as much as... But markets are betting on, on, on government action. I mean, that's... The, that's you know, right. And, you know, every time there's a, a, a hint of a bailout, the stock market goes up, Right. But from a policy standpoint, I mean, what what's the libertarian? I mean, is there a libertarian counterpoint to that? I the mean, libertarian position, I think, is to let all of these groups, countries, banks, whatever, let them fail, and deal with the aftermath. Now, the standard critique from mainstream economics is if we had let all the big banks fail and assume that they would all fail, I think that was probably a big exaggeration. But if we let a lot of those big institutions fail, we would have had a much, much bigger economic downturn. Okay? No one can prove that one way or the other. We obviously didn't do the counterfactual, so we'll never know. I don't think the evidence that we do have supports that view. There are clear stories as to why uh, having let those things fail, those institutions fail, would have helped because it would have made clear who was solvent, who was not, what was worth what in different places, and set the stage for things to then start happening in a good way again with appropriate investments. Um, but it's an incredibly impossible task for us to convince policymakers to just take the risk and let things fail. And you can imagine, if you were a policymaker, if you were George Bush, you didn't want to be the guy right. that took that risk. Right. But isn't that a systemic problem with how the world economic system works, that people aren't willing to take the risk because of the political ripple effect? You know, it's, uh, there, there hasn't been enough of a voice of, like, let's let Greece go down. It will be better for everybody in the long run. I mean, wh why can't we have more of that in the, in the public debate? 
why can't libertarians be more persuasive on every issue we'd like to be persuasive on? I mean, we're pedaling as fast as we can. And yeah. Maybe we should be pedaling a different way, but we haven't figured it out yet. They need Mr. Harper's idea of more, of more transparency about the maybe. data of what's actually going on. So Perhaps that would help. part of the issue you raise is, is the distinction between being pro-business and being pro-market. So if private sector act- actors are rushing to issue subprime mortgages or rushing to buy up uh, Greek debt, that doesn't mean they're right. Uh, And so it could be that those private sector actors are operating under distorted incentives or under the expectation of a a government bailout in case things go south. Uh, So, uh, and yet the popular public interpretation is whatever private sector actors do, that's the market, that's capitalism. Markets went up uh, on news of the bailout. So that means capitalism is endorsing a bailout. That's not that's, that's not it, right? That's private sector actors operating in a very heavily regulated and distorted economy are, are pursuing, uh, maximizing their gains within the current structure. Uh, but our question is, what, what ought the current structure to be? Right, uh, right, and right. so you can't, you can't evaluate that by, uh, by, <clears throat> by just assuming that what people do under the current structure is okay. I think Jeff, Jeff uh, mentioned a key challenge, maybe a central challenge for uh, policy analysis and for advocacy, is that policies in all fields are a series of experiments without controls. And so you get a bad thing happening, and a certain outcome occurs, and you say, see, well, if it had gone this way, it would have been different in these ways. And nobody really believes you because you can't run that controlled experiment. Whenever you, when you can find them, when you can find natural experiments, they're, they're very enlightening. But we Again and again, you advocate for a policy outcome. It goes differently with a certain result. You have to say, oh, it would have been marginally different, believe me, rather than showing how different outcomes occur from different policy inputs. I'll say one thing as an aside about how sort of markets actually make things difficult for for our work. Uh, A bad policy goes in place, whether it's uh, monetary and and fiscal policy in Greece or a big heavy regulation coming down on the manufacturing sector in the U.S., and market actors all work to try to achieve the best outcome under those conditions. And so if this regulation was going to cost 10 million jobs and, and lower the, you know, the productivity by X percent, they figure out workarounds. The industry, industries do. They figure out workarounds so it doesn't end up that bad. And I come in five years later and I say, that horrendous nightmare that was to occur was only kind of bad, so... And that's, you know, that doesn't make for, for winning policy. But markets are uh, sort of uh, actors that just take whatever the circumstances are and don't help us make the case that a certain policy intervention was a mistake. You, you've certainly put your finger on one of the great challenges of being a libertarian policy wonk, which is that the line, don't just do something, stand there, it doesn't go over very well uh, with policymakers. Uh, what goes over much, much better is we all agree something has to be done about this problem. Policy X is something. So we must do policy X, <laughs> and uh, that non-sequitur gets us to a lot of the mischief that we live under today. Grant. Uh, my question is, I guess, also about being a policy professional. Um, and the best way I know how to ask it is to give an example. So uh, one, uh, I had this conversation with uh, Dan Eikenson in the Trade Department shortly after I started here. And there's one thing the Cato Trade Department could do is say, hey, unilateral free trade is like really awesome and I can give you lots of really persuasive, uh, professionally well-reasoned arguments for why. 
and uh, you know maybe it's you know not possible now, but it's not as as was said, it's it's impossible until it's you know feasible suddenly. Uh, and another thing that the the Cato Trade Com uh, Department could do is talk about whether, for example, the the TPP is slightly better or slightly worse than than what we have now. Uh, so I guess I, I wanted maybe maybe you uh, could all comment about the the risks and benefits of focusing more on one or the other strategy. Like, do we lend legitimacy to kind of crappy policies by engaging and trying to, you know, go for, for marginal gains? Uh, do we forego marginal gains by, by articulating uh, what we think, like, the, the, the good solution actually looks like? Uh, let me field this uh, because uh, I uh, actually founded the Center for Trade Policy Studies at, uh, at Cato, so I uh, confronted this issue very early on. Uh, also, I will note that it is 5.59. I've been instructed on pain of death to close this session at 6 o'clock. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to do that. I'm sorry for the other questioners. Um, but uh, we decided very early on to straddle that. So the first paper I wrote for uh, for the Center for Trade Policy Studies was a new track for U.S. trade policy, laying out that now was finally the time to embrace uh, that unilateral trade liberalization was not only a good idea, it actually had some uh, <clears throat> a political viability it hadn't had in, in previous decades. Uh, that went nowhere, but we kept telling that message. Meanwhile, uh, we confront what's actually happening on the ground and give our best analysis of whether it's a good idea or a bad idea relative to the status quo. And I, I don't think it's in any way uh, selling out uh, to, to, to comment on what's going on in the world and to say this is better than that, but this is best of all. Uh, uh, and indeed, I think in the trade area, uh, uh, we often ran into purists that I would uh, uh, call unkindly futilitarians, uh, that is, pe people who support the expansion of human freedom except under those conditions where it might actually happen. Um, so uh, the, the truth is, in Washington, uh, progress rarely comes in gigantic, uh, transformative, incredibly intellectually pleasing uh, fashion. It comes in little messy tidbits uh, mixed up with a lot of garbage, uh, and that's just the way the world works. So if we swear off pursuing those kinds of messy incremental gains, I think we swear off participating in any progress at all. So that's the, that, that's the, uh, nonetheless, uh, we do continue, I think, uh, to, to not just buy into uh, the conventional wisdom and try on an ongoing basis to open up those window of opportunities and expand the universe of what people think is politically possible to deal with. Uh, with that, uh, thanks to our speakers, thanks to all of you.